Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 273rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Penny Phillips. Penny is the president and co-founder of Journey Strategic Wealth, an independent RA platform for advisors that manages over $3 billion in assets through the firms that they work with to outsource their back office compliance and operations management. What's unique about Penny, though, is her expertise in helping advisors to scale their own time and productivity to work more effectively with clients, both as a consultant that's trained advisors to turn their planning approach into processes that other advisors in the firm can be trained on, and now as an outsourcing provider to support advisors who don't want to have to build the processes themselves and prefer to simply tuck into a larger enterprise so that they can focus on the client work they enjoy. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Penny spent years helping advisors build systems and processes to eventually institutionalize their vision of how clients should be served so that the advisor's legacy can live on after they retire. Why Penny decided to launch her own advisor platform to offer advisors a space to tuck in and plug into existing operational infrastructure without needing to be bound up by restrictive covenants. And how advisors can decide for themselves where they want to be on what Penny calls the RAA spectrum, from being totally independent and having everything on your shoulders, to being an employee of an RAA that uses but is bound by the firm's own systems, to the growing number of midpoints now available in the advisor landscape for those who want to balance between the two. We also talk about Penny's own journey through the advisor industry, from how she accidentally began coaching consulting advisors while running a pilot program for an insurance company to transition their agents into financial advisors, how working with transitioning advisors inspired Penny to start a firm of her own that would provide advisors the platform to make that transition from working at a product-centric company into building their own advice-centric business, and why Penny ultimately decided to go ahead and take her own leap to start an advisor platform in the midst of a pandemic. And be certain to listen to the end, where Penny shares how she was surprised by how, despite technological advancements in the industry, it still remains remarkably challenging to build structure and centralize operations. How Penny came to realize that making tough decisions that aren't always popular just comes with the territory of being an effective leader running a growing business. And why Penny believes it's important to not only do what you love, but also to keep an open mind to the opportunities that may come along in life. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Penny Phillips. Welcome, Penny Phillips, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Great to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. And I think talk, talking a little bit about just this ongoing evolution in our industry from so many of us that have kind of a, a sales and product-based roots, you know, I... I I started 20 plus years ago in a life insurance firm. It took me a while to find this this thing called financial planning to an, an industry today that is increasingly is focused on advice. And I, personally, I've been really fascinated by this, just this shift and transition for many years now that 
there are some skill sets that we build in the sales world that do translate very well to advice, including that even if you want to be in the advice business, like you still have to sell. I mean, you, you're selling yourself and the knowledge between your two ears, but like you, you do have to still convince someone to pay you for your services. And in some ways, it's even harder because they actually have to write a check sometimes <laughs> for your services. So That's you true. still have to you still have to sell something. But there is a difference in just the focus, the conversations, the mindset, like what it takes to be successful in an advice role versus a product sales role. And I, I know you've you've lived a lot of that journey for your career as well of helping advisors make that transition. So just I'm I'm I don't know, I'm just I'm looking forward to this conversation of how how you transition from sales to advice and like what what changes and what stays the same when you try to make that transition. Well, you know this is a theme that I love and people often ask me how did you get into this space of the business? And it, and the, the truth is it was completely by accident because I started my career actually in sales at an asset management company, a subsidiary of an insurance firm and loved that work. And it was sort of fun to wholesale to advisors, but, but quickly shifted out of that and ended up in what is considered, I guess, practice management, consulting, and coaching. And I spent the first part of my career within an insurance broker-dealer observing really successful insurance agents who were struggling to make the transition to be what we would consider to be wealth management advisors or, or you know, financial planners. And what I learned really early on, which I know we're going to talk about, is that it doesn't have to do that challenge with the transition, it doesn't have to do with, you know, technical competency or knowledge set, which it could be taught or, or certified to, but it really had to do with behavioral shifts, um, mindset shifts, belief system shedding, and so much more of what I consider to be the coaching work than the consulting work. And that early experience has informed many of the decisions I've made throughout the, my career. And I've, I've gotten to use that experience as a consultant and now as, as the owner of an RIA, you know, working with advisors every day. So it's been really interesting. So can you just talk to us about that a little bit more? Like what, what were the, like, what were the shifts? What were the mindset shifts? What were the belief shifts, I guess, were, were happening or, or were not happening that was blocking advisors from making that, that transition? You know, so one thing I noticed really early on, Michael, and I think many folks will, this will resonate with them. The, the first thing was when you are trained in, in a sales organization, and this could be any sales organization, and I, I ask the audience to imagine, you know, an, an advisor and it will call them a sales professional who's been doing the same thing, let's say for two decades. They've been trained a very specific way, their activity you know, each day looks a very specific way. What actually happens is, and I still talk about this all the time on videos, you know, dopamine is produced for the sales professional a very specific way. And it really gets down to that fundamental stuff, the psychology stuff, right? So the advisor is used to selling, transacting, and in, in some cases, especially if you grew up in the insurance BD world, getting to that sale or transaction within the first meeting or first conversation, like that's the, the goal for them. So think of these advisors who've been trained this way to think that the more exhausted you are, the more successful you'll be, the more, you know, quantity, um, you know, the better. And the faster you can get to the end sale, by the way, of a product 
that nobody wants at a time that they don't want it, like that is the ultimate for them. So, so that's the psyche of, of most of these successful insurance agents that I had initially been sort of observing and analyzing. And all of a sudden we want to get them to a place where they're certified CFPs engaging in financial planning and engaging in this comprehensive engagement with a client where the end result isn't in fact a sale of a product, but rather the positioning of this, you know, roadmap that gives them, you know, theoretical ideas and solutions that they can decide on. It is a totally different way of doing business. And what I found was challenge number one, it is very hard to untrain or retrain when when you've been selling a specific way and, and literally everything that makes you feel good and happy and successful is derived from a certain set of activity. So just to summarize that really simply, what I noticed is that advisors that were quote unquote had evolved on paper, meaning got the certifications that they needed to be quote unquote advisors, were still thinking about the advisory business and planning as a sale and not as a process. And that was really challenge number one thinking differently about the outcome that's going to be produced, about the way you're going to feel and the client's going to feel about it, the way you're going to present it, the time it takes to do that. That's a, there's a lot there to get used to that firms were not thinking about or training advisors to think about. So that really was number one. One thing that resonates with me, so we did a, a financial planning study off the Kitsis platform a few years ago where where we went out and, and literally did like time evaluations of, of not even just how long advisors spent on planning, like how long advisors spent on each, each part of the planning process and what they do along the way and like what software and tools they're using. And one of the hypotheses, one of the things that we wanted to test was, this was a couple of years ago as account aggregation was not quite as widely used as it is today. And so we wanted to look and see, you in theory, account aggregation has a lot of time savings opportunities, right? Just like you can pipe data in so you don't have to do it manually. You can shortcut the data gathering process if clients just start linking accounts. And so we wanted to see, like, are the advisors using tools like eMoney with its account aggregation faster in their financial planning process than those who are not? And what we found was literally the opposite. The advisors who used account aggregation and gathered more data spent more time in the planning process, not less, because once they got more data, they could go deeper in the process. Like there were more things to analyze. There were more recommendations to form. There were more things to do. There were more opportunities to implement. Like it, it, it enriched the planning process very much. But the advisors weren't using the technology to do planning faster. They were using the technology to do planning better. And what's always struck me about that is I've watched this trend over the past four or five years of a lot of different planning software tools trying to make their software like simpler to use because the sales that they're trying to do into a lot of the what were historically product-based organizations, the pushback they hear, you know, very much the minds of the advisor you're talking about, like, I already get this done in a one meeting close. Like planning takes more time. I don't like, I don't, why would I, I don't want to do plan. Like all that planning stuff takes so much time. I don't, I don't want to do it. And so the, the software company response has been, well, we'll try to make our planning software faster and easier. And then they, they make the, the planning software simpler and easier to use. And it still doesn't get adopted by so those true. advisors because at the end of the day, like you could make planning software that magically takes three seconds and outputs the plan. If your dopamine pathway has been built to getting the sale in the first meeting, like that's still three seconds more than you needed to take <laughs> to get to the same outcome. Like, why would you do that to yourself? And it's, 
because like it's it's not a it's not a time problem. It's a you spent twenty years teaching me and rewarding me for getting to the sale as quickly as possible, and any additional planning conversation you introduce just drags that out. Like it's it, so that's your true. goal. <laughs> and it, there's another element of that too. And by the way, this isn't just the exclusive to the insurance BD world. This is wirehouse world. This is even you know, old, old school, you know, broker dealer world, anywhere where advisors were raised in a system in which they're rewarded for production, really. So it's our entire industry, let's say. The, the way in which many of these firms still pay their advisors has not changed. And so all these other things, training has changed, tech has changed. But if the way in which you're rewarding the advisor and you're still calling them producers and you're still, you know, giving them ribbons based on, you know, XYZ sale, then, then the, the feelings are not going to change. There's this bigger issue that ties to the dopamine pathways. And it's when you're a sales professional and think of the advisors who've been successful because of their own abilities, that conversation, that engagement with a client and I'm generalizing here, but that that really is about in the advisor's mind sometimes the advisor's talent, right? And and the advisor feeling good about their ability to influence or convince somebody. When you're in a planning engagement or you're trained as a coach, what you learn is that you need to be solely focused on the objective and outcome that the client or consumer wants, and not at all about yourself you know, how good you are at, at sort of selling. And if you're really effective as a coach and planners are, you know, coaches essentially by trade, then it's this shift from it being about me to it has to be about the consumer. So the bigger, I would say, behavioral shift that I noticed was getting an advisor to enter into a conversation or meeting with no preconceived notion about what the end result is going to be. And that is totally different from going in and knowing you're going to sell, you know, whole life or, you know, this, you know, muni bond or whatever it is. And so that was the bigger issue that I saw across the industry. So one of the dynamics here is this, when you've been trained in a certain way and you're rewarded in a certain way, it's very hard to rewire the brain off of that. And and frankly, as long as you're continuing to be rewarded that way, it's like really hard to change off of that. Right. Uh, so that's kind of one domain. I think you'd said there. there's like a second part or some additional parts to what else goes on or, or is struggling to happen in this sales to advice shift. Yeah, they're linked together, right? I would say that second piece is this idea of, you know, it being about the advisor practitioner's sort of talent and, and, you know, knowledge set versus like going into meetings or conversations with prospects and clients, being able to have no judgment or beliefs about what the client needs until you sort of know all the information. So that's the second shift. And then the third is really just seeing things um, very transactionally specifically. And you will likely remember this, Michael. I mean, when the industry really shifted from, you know, product focused to advisory focused, you know, for a fee, you know, advisors were still, and and I went through this at InvestNet working with broker dealers. It was always interesting to me, even with the best technology and access to, you know, advisory programs and, you know, the investments of the world, adoption of the tech and the advisory programs were very low. Advisors would go direct to, you know, a TAMP that they were used to working with or just continuing to do business exactly as they did because the, the shift to presenting an advisory engagement as a, as a process and not as a solution was very hard for them to grasp. 
Um, and, and I would well, say, and, and you've been doing so well not doing that, doing well, exactly. it the other way, right? It's like. Exactly. Super profitable businesses. And, you know, I would say that leads to the the last, I would say, this shift of when you're changing from running what is essentially a sales practice to an enduring business that is underpinned by recurring revenue, right, which is what happens when you're a planner and, and, you know, charging fees for advice, Okay, you have to run the practice very differently to continue mm-hmm. to be profitable. And and the problem is these some of these sales practices are, you know, very profitable and and again, the cash flow is different. And so the biggest challenge of all is now, okay, if you actually evolve enough to be able to act as a, you know, planner and and advisor, okay, now you, we also need you to learn how to run a business and manage a P&L effectively. And, and that's a whole other aspect of practice management that firms just had not trained advisors on, on how to do effectively. Yeah, I, I used to call this the, like, the accidental business owner <laughs> exactly. phenomenon. That exactly. Just, right, there was a natural effect when you're in the sales business, when you're in the commission-based business, and just every January 1st, you go back to zero. Right. right. Not, not totally zero. You get a little bit of trails these days. Like You, you basically go almost all, all the way back to zero every year. And, and because of that, you tend to never really hire up much team or build a large organization behind you. Like you can make some really good money if you're mm-hmm. if you're good at, at sales and business development, but you don't pick up a lot of team overhead when your income goes to zero every year. You know, if you pick up enough staff, it's like, cool, I'm going to work until October just to pay my team. And then sometime in November, I'll, my business will have like the business version of Black Friday <laughs> where I actually go into the positive and then I only make money in the last month of the year because <laughs> I had to cover my overhead for the year. Like that just does not feel good in a, right. in a in a business sales context. So rarely did we ever hire more than like admin staff just to handle the paperwork so that we could go do do more sales transactions. Right. And when you get into this recurring revenue model where you'd get clients and they tend to stick around and then you go get more clients and you add to the existing ones and then you've got more of them and then suddenly you just literally have so many clients you couldn't see them all. So you start hiring a support advisor to go see them and then like another lead advisor to take some of them over so you can free up your space to go get more. And it happens very slowly and organically for most firms. You, you know, you get your uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 new clients in a year and and slowly bulk up. But then at some point over 5, 7, 10 years, you actually have a bunch of team members and suddenly like a, not so much of your time goes to other clients anymore and a lot of your time goes towards managing all these people. And it's like at some point I stopped being an advisor and started being an advisory firm business owner. I'm not even sure where it changed. I just That's know right. that now I work a lot of hours and have a lot of clients and a lot of staff and like I'm making a lot more money, but I'm actually like more tired than I was before uh, because suddenly I find myself in this business, like really sizable business owner position that I hadn't really been prepared for or trained to handle. Com- completely. And then there's this piece about, when again, this, this always resonates with advisors that so what you just described, all true, plus because the advisor likely built his or her business by just acquiring, I mean, sometimes they say anyone with a pulse. And the reality is, is that many folks started that way, right? They just wanted to yeah. bring on clients or had to. Or they end up like anyone who can follow yes. me or any rev- revenue you can get is good revenue. Exactly. So the, by the time the advisor gets to the place where they realize, oh my God, I'm running a business. And now we're talking about enterprise value. And now they're thinking, gosh, A, do I even like running this business? B, wow, I have a real asset here. 
but I've built the business so that I am the most relevant person to it in two ways. Number one, I'm the primary and only revenue generator. And secondly, I'm the only main decision maker in the business. So two really dangerous things when you're trying to build enduring enterprise. So that's one thing. And then the, the, the other part of that is advisors realize, gosh, I built this business, but the majority of clients are actually not clients I want to be working with anymore, but I don't have the time and capacity to even think about how to replace or, you know, bring in more clients that look more like, you know, the top five relationships or 10 relationships I have that I do actually consider to be ideal. So they're stuck in this conundrum. And it it was at that conundrum that I really started coaching advisors when, when obviously I was running the consulting business. And it's at that point where I, I look to attract those type of advisors to the RIA now journey. So it all has come full circle for me in, in helping folks at that stage of the business life cycle. So what changes for the advisor that does get to that point or what has to change? Like when you were coaching them, what were you trying to coach them to change or move to or move towards to handle that transition? So a bunch of things. And I, I will say foundationally, the, the very first thing is, well, first of all, hopefully the advisor is coachable, right? We hope that when we're having a coaching conversation or engagement that the advisor is prepared or capable of shedding old belief systems. And I use that term a lot. And that's just, a, I'll give you a really simple example of that. I talk to advisors all the time who've said things like, I didn't get in the business to manage people. I suck at managing mm. people, right? That's probably the one I've, I've heard most often. And I challenge that belief system because if you think that way about yourself, you will look at everything through that lens and oftentimes negatively through that lens. And if you really believe you suck at managing people, I promise you always will. (laughs) Exactly. And I challenge the, the belief system too, because look, advisors manage people for a living emotionally, right? It's just like clients. That's the part Mm -hmm. of their job is sort of people management and leveraging EQ skills. And there's, again, this belief that the advisor is the most important person to a business. And up until a certain point, yes, he or she is. But the advisor often feels very much responsible for the development of each person on the team. And I challenge that thinking. I'll talk about that. So the first thing is like getting advisors to understand they're going to have to shed belief systems they've hung on to for a long time. The second thing is getting comfortable making a decision or at least being on the path to making a decision about whether they want to build lifestyle practice or enterprise. And I I position it as simply as that because that really is the decision we're asking advisors to make for a long time. And still to this day, and I write about this and talk about it every day, we're obsessed with telling advisors that they need to be CEOs. There are so many programs out there, right? Advisor to CEO. I mean, I've, you know, ran a couple of those programs, but A, not everyone knows what a CEO does, first of all. Second of all, not everybody wants to do that, should be doing that. And there's nothing wrong if you're at a larger organization where you can gain efficiency and scale. There's nothing wrong with building a boutique niche practice that's small and just has you working with the 80 people you want to be. There's nothing wrong with that model. However, if you're committed to building something that lasts and endures long after you are gone then you have to think and build differently. And the number one thing you have to get comfortable with is becoming irrelevant to the business over time. And that's a really hard concept for advisors to 
accept, embrace, and make decisions around because for so long they've been the most important. And there's nothing wrong with becoming less relevant to the bit. Not let me not say irrelevant, less relevant to the business over time. And so that you know forces advisors to start thinking about other talent that can work with, and not just service clients, but I mean work with clients deliver review meetings, help them make decisions, be the, you know, the go-to person. Um, that requires hiring a specific way, developing a specific way and giving up control, which is really difficult. So it's thinking about themselves and their own role in, differently in the business. That's one of the things that we, you know, always used to coach to. It's hiring differently and really getting clear about what it is you want to build and why that the, the why piece is very important um, as well because it's the why that's going to carry you through you know the business life cycle when you've you know run out of capacity and and have to pivot and think about a different way of building that's sustainable you know for the next decade or so. So I want to actually spend a few more moments on on just this discussion of. What does it mean to become irrelevant to your business over time? Like I, I, I mean, that is a thing we we kind of say in the in the business practice management world. Uh, but I mean, I think for so many of us in the advisor realm, like almost everybody in the bit, like in the building phase, you are the center of the business. You are the business. Like there, there is no one else. It is that's right. It is you. And then and then at if it goes well basically you put yourself on a bigger pedestal which is you know the business is built around me and there's a whole bunch of people that support me so it's like right. me and people who support me uh and just and i mean that's what you have to do not to be egocentric like that's what you have to do to, right. to build the business in the early stages and so like what does it mean to make yourself irrelevant to the business and if you do that why are you getting paid so much money <laughs> yeah well the second piece i'll, I'll you know pause on that for a second but you so the first question is maybe I will address the second piece first. I we we I have a lot of conversations with advisors about fees and compensation. Sometimes I spar with advisors on social media about or consultants rather about you know what advisors get paid and you know the, that last piece I and I say this all the time. It's and we've seen it especially the last two years. Outside of a medical professional, I would argue that somebody who is technically proficient in planning and it's helping a family navigate the complexities of life and set themselves up for a happy and fulfilling retirement. That is the most important professional next to a medical professional that a, a family in any country could work with. And so I will always defend an advisor's um, the fees that they generate for advice and for actually delivering that value proposition. Um, right. on, on, I hear you, but you're like then making this case, but I don't do that anymore, apparently, because like I made myself irrelevant to the business and yes. handed but, off my clients to everybody else and hired owner, like leaders to run it. Like, and what, what am I doing here at this point? <laughs> well, what that actually means when you've successfully made that transition and made yourself, you know, less relevant to decision making you know, and you put people in charge of, you know, operations and the lead advisors on your team is you've institutionalized what you've done so successfully and essentially guaranteed that the impact that you have had on, let's say, the 80 families that you have, you know, work with on an ongoing basis, that you've been able to, you know, 5X that. So now you're not just having impact on, you know, a handful of people, you're having an impact on, entire communities of people. And so when I when I talk about this idea of being less relevant, what it actually means is that you've institutionalized 
the way the business grows. So you've been able to actually acquire clients, not necessarily through your own individual efforts, meaning I'm out there, you know, prospecting every day, but I've built enough of a name or I've built enough brand, you know, recognition and value proposition recognition that the, the business is now institutionalized in that it's the content we put out, you know, generates interest and people are coming to us. And we also have financial planners and advisors on staff who are able to deliver this value proposition and advice in the same way. So like the most beautiful thing is building that business where you don't have to be the one driving the things that we know we need in order for the business to be successful, right? Leads and clients coming in the door and value being delivered the way you promised to deliver it. Having that happen without you being the one to drive that 24 hours a day it is, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And yes, it does mean you're less relevant, but, uh, you know, in a way that ultimately benefits society. I mean, I know that sounds like a sort of a big thing, but it's it's the truth. Well, I, I like the framing that that it's around like it, it's not around making like making yourself irrelevant per se it's about institutionalizing what what you do in a way that's just more transferable to other people on the team who can get who can get trained to do your your thing your way because this why when, when i think about it from that perspective i, I sort of think of it as you're you know you're you're going to build a, a a bigger more successful business that may even be more more financially profitable for you because in essence you're you're not getting paid for your work anymore. You're you're getting paid for your intellectual property. Correct. Like you're, you're you have created the you know the Smith way of doing financial planning and the Smith way that clients are served and the the Smith client experience. You don't necessarily have to name it that way, although you can. <laughs> uh, but like you 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 made a thing and taught other like you made a way that clients are served and you taught other people to do it your way. And so the reason why that becomes a bigger business now is you're essentially, you've turned what you do from a service you offer to an intellectual property thing you've created. And you're now getting paid to teach others the the method, the, the approach, the style, the thing. Yes. And what's even more, and why I love this business so much, and what I think is even more exciting about it for advisors is that the CFP and the, and the financial planning organizations dictate the way in which we think about planning, right? It's the advisors don't have to consistently reinvent the wheel as it relates to how to deliver. And I, I talk about this a lot, you know, services in our industry and, you know, are, are commoditized to some extent. What you can actually institutionalize is client care and things like experiences for clients. And what I mean by that is there are tons of advisors doing financial planning in very similar ways across the industry. And, you know, all of them are great. Where advisors really get to differentiate and and institutionalize is in the way in which they actually deliver that experience. And I think that's something that's, you know, a newer concept as we've really pivoted to delivering advice in our industry. And it gives advisors the freedom to, I think, creatively build their practices how they want to, while all adhering essentially to the same standards of care as financial planners. So who makes this shift? As you said, like some advisors make the shift, some don't, some struggle with it. So who makes this shift and how does it happen? That's a really good question. Um, so it, I think it manifests differently depending obviously on the advisor. I've talked to so many advisors who are 40 years old, but have been doing this for let's say 20 years. 
and are really exhausted. I would say the first couple years of doing this type of work, that was the profile that would emerge often. It was advisors, you know, in the wirehouses or in a traditionally sales or like an old BD, traditional sales sort of culture that had gotten to a place where they're like, God, I've made, and I'm talking about a very specific psyche of advisor here. I've made more money than I ever imagined making, but I'm exhausted and I don't know if I can continue to build this. And by the way, firms are really smart, right? It's not just the advisor's year renewing in January. There are many firms that have advisor years or in the insurance BD space agency years that actually end midway through the year. So they're actually incentivizing advisors to sell, sell, sell. Advisor year ends in June and then sell, 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 sell because you have your calendar year. So it's advisor to get to a place where like, God, I want to get out of the grind And I realized the only way to do that is to really evolve the way I think about the business and the way I deliver my services to clients. So that's the one advisor who sort of gets there naturally and is ready to make the shift. I'm not saying it's easy, but that is one profile of advisor. Um, And and I would say the, the other is the advisor who's gotten to a place where they recognize that they are up against time. And so that's the other, I would say, advisor that's maybe they're 10 years out from retirement. In many cases, it's a lot less than that. And they realize, oh my gosh, I want to start slowing down. I can't, or I thought I would be able to, but you know, by the way, I've built this team again, where I have a fabulous support team, but they are supporting me in revenue generation, financial planning and decision-making. And I actually need people that can proactively and strategically sort of operate. So sometimes they get there intentionally, but I found that that in many cases, they get there to your point by accident and then realize I have to make some, some major shifts and changes. And that's usually when they're reaching out to a coach or consultant, or they're making a transition to, to leave a firm that they're at to go out and quote unquote, go independent. So oftentimes it happens by accident and then they're faced with the reality of, okay, now I need to evolve. And so much of that is the the personal coaching work that they have to do, but then also learning how to actually systematize and institutionalize a business, which is where, you know, most of the problems um, emerge. Sometimes they don't, but but most of the time. So how did you just come to doing this work. Can can you give a little bit more background on uh, just your your path of how you came to delving into all these issues? Absolutely. And I me too. It it sort of happened by accident. I started in sales. Um I was at a asset management subsidiary of an insurance company. Fancy way of saying, you know, third-party distribution or wholesaling and you know, it was a fun way to start in the business. I loved working with advisors. I didn't love the transaction-oriented nature of that type of a role. And so I had an opportunity very early on to transition to a different part of New York life. Everybody knows that's who knows me knows that's where I started, um, to their corporate RIA. And at the time, this is like almost right out of school, New York Life's corporate RIA called Eagle Strategies was trying to figure out we have these really successful insurance agents who we call financial advisors. Um, but they're they're insurance agents and they're really great in the mid-market. We want to give them access and the resources and tools they need to dominate the affluent and you know what the industry calls the affluent market. But they're having trouble making that transition. Why is that? And so the firm was running a pilot program. I spent probably a year, Michael, as part of that pilot, just in the field talking to advisors across the country and sort of understanding where the challenges were for them in 
even with the certifications and getting their CFPs and their designee and all the things, still having trouble operating as advisor business owners, let's say. And what was so striking to me was that the answer to me seemed very obvious after about, I would say, eight months of really spending time with advisors and also studying the Mark Tabersian's writing and, and following people like you and became very apparent to me that the issue wasn't technical competency because you can you know, teach that to some extent. The, the challenge really was thinking differently about your own role in the advisory mm-hmm. conversation and relationship and really having to learn and adopt new skill sets and behaviors and mindsets when you're making that shift. So that was my first foray into the space. And what ended up happening as part of that pilot was um, wrote a program called Practice Management Solutions, which was essentially a paint-by-numbers program for advisors who were shifting into that, oh, wow, now I run a practice and I need to make it a sustainable practice. And it was covered five core areas of practice management and step-by-step how to make decisions and build and transition. And so it was fascinating work. I loved it. But what I found was that it's really hard to build a true practice management coaching division within an insurance company. And I went so far as to, I mean, we hired a team. I worked with fabulous people. We all became certified as coaches because for me, it was much more critical for the team to have the skill sets to be able to help people, again, shift their belief systems than it was to teach them, you know, a concept. And so we were all certified as coaches. It was an amazing experience. But look, New York Life wanted to tie practice management success back to life insurance sales. And so I thought obviously different about what we were trying to do and ultimately left and went to InvestNet, which was a tremendous opportunity for me. And again, there's a theme here. It's always sort of newly started divisions that I go go in and see what's going on. And it was a strategic consulting division that InvestNet was building out. And it was similar work, but on a bigger scale. So working with institutions to not just understand advisor behavior, but also is the advisory program we've introduced or, you know, we're leveraging InvestNet, is our pricing right? Is this going to help advisors make the transition? So it was really consulting on a different scale. And I loved that work, but I missed working individually with advisors. And so I ended up leaving InvestNet. I went to work at a coaching company, um, left there, launched my own company ultimately, which looking back was you know, obviously my destiny to, to sort of run my own thing. And that was exciting work. The company's called Thrivos. It still exists. I don't obviously consult anymore, but we worked individually with teams. Many of them um, that had passed that million in revenue mark were really trying to figure out how to, how to build something that could be monetized in a real way or who were in transition. That work was fun. And working with institutions. So I've written programs that I've licensed the IP to, to programs in the in, um, firms in the U.S. and Canada, all around practice management concepts. Um, my favorite one was, you know, um, building the Generation Resilient Business, which was a program, you know, all around helping advisors think not just about the changing consumer demographics that they're facing, but the changing advisor demographics, meaning the advisors we're talking about are bringing in to, to take over their businesses, obviously, and, and who are going to be their successors are a totally different profile of human being than the senior advisor. And that's a whole other element of this that's interesting and confusing at the same time. So teaching advisors, you know, about how to obviously work with the next gen. And so that was a real fun program to build. But 
ultimately I pivoted, as you know, during the pandemic and left the coaching and consulting world to launch an RIA. And in many ways, it's the culmination of all my experiences and things that I wish advisors had at a firm. You know, me now being able to deliver that as an RIA has been just the, you know, the pinnacle, I, I think, of everything I've done so far. Sorry, that's so I got to ask, like, who goes and launches a new business in the middle of pandemic? No, me. I mean, yeah. And, you, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I start every presentation, by the way, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a speaker now and have always admired, obviously, your speaking. But I, I start most presentations now with we may feel like everything's changed, but nothing has really changed. And I felt that way right before we launched the firm. And I launched with three partners, obviously. We sort of kept telling ourselves, like, yes, we have to do this via Zoom and not physically in person, Mm -hmm. but nothing fundamentally about the industry has changed. We know the headwinds we're facing. We know the challenges and opportunities that advisors have been thinking about and worried about for the past decade. Like they're here and maybe have been exacerbated because of the pandemic, but the core vision and the value that I knew we could deliver, I was 100% sure about whether or not we were in a pandemic. So that part actually wasn't as challenging as just the sheer challenge of launching an RIA and corralling a team around a, a mission when there's thousands of other RIAs out there. So, so talk to us a little bit more than about what you actually launched and what you built. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a in, great question. In said crowded landscape. Yes, it is. And that was, you know, part of it was thinking about, gosh, if we're going to launch this, it has to be different. It has to feel different. And we want it to be different, obviously. Again, this is years of consulting and and then doing the Thrivos thing and really working in the independent and RIA space more than ever before and realizing that, gosh, technology is not a different, like, I don't ever want to see that on someone's website because it's in the, when you're in the independent landscape and you're running your thing, like we all have access to the same stuff. And I kind of grew tired of this, of seeing like our differentiators, our technology and our, you know, investment management process. Like it's really not for me, the differentiator to advisors and trying to attract advisors is that we're built for advisors who want to spend 80% or more, and this is by mandate, this is our mission, 80% or more of their time with clients or with prospects. Because to me, leadership and and you know being an advisor, that to me, that can mean being the actual practitioner or just being the person that's better at delivering the you know, the value proposition and and the thought leadership content and whatever it is. So we want our advisors to spend 80% or more of their time doing just that, Wh- whichever one is their, you know, destiny, I guess, if you will. Um, and so we're an RIA that focuses on totally taking over the operational infrastructure work that an advisor would need to do if they're running their own thing. And we also have um, a ton of flexibility in terms of how we support advisors, um, not just from a practice management perspective, but from a capital perspective as well. So I'll explain what that means. We basically add teams, um, allow them to outsource all of their operations to us, meaning we really step in as almost a C-suite executive slash back office team to do everything from, you know, trading and, and billing and, you know, investment management, of course, to HR, to paying all the advisor's expenses and bills. Every expense of the business becomes a journey expense. Um, we step in to help 
develop team members, help advisors make hiring decisions, help advisors decide what it is they're going to compensate. So we try to strike a balance between the advisor having independence because they can own 100% of their equity, meaning there's no restrictive covenants in our contracts. And even though the advisor team comes on our ADV, they can leave us at any time without restrictions. That's intentional. So we want advisors to feel like they own their business. It's their team. But we are literally helping them behind the scenes make the decisions that they need to make to run a profitable and sustainable business. And then we're actually implementing those decisions for them. So I will know better as a consultant and and my partners, of course, one who has M&A and CFO for RIA's background, we will know conceptually when an advisor needs to hire the next service advisor, right? Or the next para planner. And so in allowing us to have this ongoing, almost practice management coaching relationship with the advisors we bring on, we're able to preempt hiring decisions. We come to them with research and say, hey, it's time now to, to, to think about compensation for next year. Um, here's the three-way comp and development pathways that your you know, associate advisor is on. Here's what we're thinking in terms of salary plus bonus. How do you think about that? And it's a discussion. And then they obviously deliver it. So it's this really unique way of combining all the resources that an RIA aggregator has, if you will, with hands-on practice management support. And what I found is that, and before we launched, what I'll say is we looked at thousands and thousands of advisor businesses, people we had coached, um, P&Ls. And what we found is that advisors don't realize that when they leave a larger organization to go independent or run their own RIA, they tend to chase payout, Michael, especially if they're leaving a captive firm. And they get really excited by the idea of being independent and having a 92% payout. And the truth is nobody has a 92% anything. Okay. And you know this better than anyone. The profitability of an individual advisory practice is between like, let's call it 38 and like 45%, right? So what we said is like, we need to educate the industry about the reality of running an independent business. Oh, and by the way, we can pay out between 50 to 65%. And that is the net payout to the advisor. There is not another expense that they have to make because we're betting on the fact that we can run the business profitably and more efficiently at scale than the advisor could individually. So uh, advisors taking home more money, the business is going to be worth more because they're tucked into a $3 billion RIA. Oh, but the advisor still has the ability to sort of develop into this, the the leader that they want to be with us really doing all the hard stuff behind the scenes. So for me, it's the cross-section of flexibility, support, and independence, and it doesn't actually exist the way we've built it right now in the industry. So help me understand a little bit more of like just the mechanics of how this is structured, because just so many different firms are arranging these in different ways. So the advisor is on your ADV. So it's like at at the end of the day, like technically they're IARs of your RIA. They're like, they're, they're not, they're not running their own, you know, Smith financial planning LLC or anything anymore. Uh, but you don't have any restrictive covenants associated with any employment agreements. Like you can, you're going to have the relationships because you just meet with the clients, have the relationships and you can, you can walk away and change that and go rehang your shingle across the street anytime you want, because there's nothing stopping you from going out the door. That's correct. And the first part of what you said is absolutely true. And one of the things we said when we launched is 
we care much, and I will say this as the president of the company with 100% conviction, I care so much more about educating advisors about their options in the RIA space and the realities of what it means to be an IAR and versus an employee versus a you know 1099. I care more about that than actually getting advisors to join us, although obviously I want that as well. And so I tell advisors to think about it as you know, the, the RIA space is a spectrum, right? One side of the spectrum is you launch your own RIA, you have 100% responsibility. Obviously, you have 100% freedom to do whatever the heck you want, but all oversight, compliance, decision-making about tech, custodians, negotiations with con- everything is your responsibility. Obviously, tremendous upside there. But what we've learned in the business is that it's becoming increasingly more, and we're seeing this with consolidation in our industry with, you know, private equity money and money pouring into the space, which which has made it more difficult for advisors to run businesses, standalone RIA businesses, sub, let's just call it 100 million. Um, it's hard for them to gain efficiency and scale, right? Pricing is more favorable when you're larger. You can gain efficiency and scale when you're larger, right? We know that. We will continue to see consolidation for a bunch of different reasons. And by that, I mean advisors joining firms like Journey or, you know, joining service providers. But so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is you're bought 100% by, let's say, a Mercer and you become part of their organization and there are branch offices and it starts to sort of feel very much like a wire, by the way, but that's like the complete other end of the spectrum. And then there's this piece in the middle where it's, you can tuck into a RIA and get access to services. And in some cases, you're not on their ADV, you're accessing services, you're getting a payout between, let's call it 70 and 90%. And in some of those cases, you have a la carte choices, right? You can just use the investment management resources that this firm is offering, or you can just use them for compliance and oversight, but you're responsible for running the rest of the business. And we know, and I know as a career consultant, number one thing advisors have trouble with is human capital and just the sheer challenge of building and developing people and and structuring deals and succession plans and so all of that stuff. And so the gap that I saw was at this middle point. So now we've told advisors like the best thing you could do, maybe not run, launch your own business, but you know, talk into an organization and get the the highest payout. What's started happening in the industry, and we've seen this the last couple of years is there are many RIA quote unquote service providers that charge a lot for stuff that is actually cheap to access now independently. And they're still overcharging advisors. Advisors don't know it. And like, it's like what? I mean, it's like, what are people charging a lot for that doesn't actually cost a lot to access get? to technology? Um, I would say being one of them. Okay. Um, pricing, pricing has changed in the fintech space. Um, I'm not, I won't like name names, but you know, there are a lot of firms that if you were to run a firm independently, you can get access to some of these services cheaper than you are getting them. At Because keep in mind, if a firm is charging you for access to their services, they've got to make They've got to make margin on that. Yeah, they got to make margin. Charging you. Yep. And so it's the, the decision now is the same decision really the consumer has actually when working with an advisor. It's the same decision the advisor has now when a, um, affiliating with an RIA. It is lowest cost or highest value. And what I tell advisors is lowest cost means to, to these firms, like they're going to give you an 87% payout and they're going to say that's, you know, cheap and now you have to go run your business versus what we're doing, which is saying, no, we're going to, we're going to give you a 60% payout, but we're going to do literally everything. We're going to provide highest value. So yes, embedded in that 
you know, 40% you're giving up is, you know, technology and compliance and oversight. But, oh, and by the way, it's also us actually operationally running the business. And that was a gap that I really wanted to solve for. And I, I want advisors to understand that being a W-2 doesn't necessarily mean you're a slave to a corporation. And that's another thing we've told advisors, and maybe they felt that in the wirehouses, but that's not, that is a decision that we made that was strategic for us as Journey to maximize ultimately our valuation so that everybody can benefit, you know, in 15, 20 years if we ever sell our business. So now help us understand a little bit more how how Journey then prices on this spectrum in the world of of payouts. I mean, it sounds like you do have kind of a payout style structure, like clients pay fees into Journey because technically you're the RA and CDB, and then advisors get remitted some portion of their of their revenue back to them. So how does the how does the payout structure work in in Journey? Sure. So it's a uh, really simple, and we designed it intentionally that way. And when we do comparisons on an advisor running their own thing versus joining in one of these RIA like service providers will call them versus us, it's very clean. Like when you're running your own thing, you have a P&L, you're likely netting, let's call it 43%. You're joining RIA service provider, you have your payout, you know, cost of goods sold, and then you're running your thing and net profits are around the same. Versus journey, there's no expenses to you. You get a single payout of between 50 to 65%, and that's net-net. Payout is determined when we are going through the process of discovery with the advisor. We do a deep dive on their book of business. Um, In some cases, we will help the advisor optimize their team before joining us, meaning if an advisor is coming to us, they're a million-dollar practice, and they've got, you know, seven team members on staff, and two of those are, you know, insurance underwriters, I'm making that up, we may say, look, um, okay, you you likely don't need these two roles, so um, we either recommend we find new homes for them or we transition these roles into something else, associate advisor roles, revenue generator or revenue retainer roles, as I call them. So that we can create more capacity for the business and, and it could be more profitable on its own. So we go through this long process of deep discovery into everything from the way they price, the fees they charge to team members to comp. And just like we would in a practice management engagement, we sort of say, like, here's how we would optimize the business so you can step into the powerful role you want to step into. And then obviously, if they join Journey, we go about implementing all of that. So advisor joins us and what I say is like their day-to-day won't feel much different um, except for the fact that they don't have responsibilities around managing their books or HR or payroll or compliance or tech is down or gosh, do we need to, somebody just quit? Like I need to hire somebody. None of those responsibilities they have to worry about anymore. We literally step in and do all of that. Um, Yes, they are a journey firm, And here's where that I talked about the intersection between flexibility, support, um, and independence comes in. Like we recognize that it's really important for advisors in many cases to still lead and be the leader and be viewed as the leader. And so we actually work with them to customize the way we will support them throughout the year, meaning we have a standard set of meetings and sessions that we do with firms, right? We have monthly business development sessions. We have quarterly strategic um, business planning sessions. We have annual compensation sessions. And that's where like myself and others at at Journey, quote unquote, home office are actually meeting with the, you know, key stakeholder partner advisor and saying like, 
let's sort of plan what the next quarter looks like, or let's talk about goals. Let's talk about how we're going to develop, you know, the associate advisor on your team. And so the advisor is still the one ultimately making the decision, but we are truly consulting them on how to make the most optimal decision. I just had a call with an advisor that they said something that really resonated with me, just sort of the light bulb went off for me. And and they were talking to me about a firm that is trying to court them and showing them how, how much more profitable they'd be if they joined this firm and not journey and like our payouts suck and whatever. And and what I always say to advisors is, first of all, when you're talking to a firm that's trying, they're, they're putting their best salesperson in front of you, number one, okay? Number two, they're painting you a picture of the most operationally efficient business that could be run. Any projections that a firm is showing you is like best case scenario. And the reality is it just does not work that way. People are not as productive as you assume they'll be, right? Parkinson's law, like all these things. And so what we're actually showing advisors is the reality of what it's going to be when they join us. There's no surprises in terms of how they're going to get paid out or or sort of grow or make money. Oh, and by the way, they're going to benefit from multiple expansions. So if they're concerned about like what they're going to sell their business for down the line as a standalone, like they get the benefit of also monetizing likely at a higher valuation that they would on their own. So it's like any pushback that I've heard from advisors going through the, like we try to solve for all of those. So it's a super concierge sort of relationship with our partner firms where they day to day are doing their thing, but we're really behind the scenes, like operating and implementing everything they need to serve clients, develop team members and attract new business. So take me back once more just to this kind of payout range of 50 to 65 is like any particular advisor. Like where do I land in this range? I mean, are you ultimately moving it up and down? It's like, hey, you know, you got a lot more staff than most firms your size. Like if you want to hold on to them, that's cool, but we're only going to give you a 52% payout if you're willing to dial your team back to something that's more typical for you know, your client base size, like then we can move you up to 60%. I mean, is it Correct. is it that kind of negotiating back and forth as a, I'm thinking about that in contrast to at least how payout rates work in, I'll call it like you, the, the, the old traditional world, which is essentially all production based, like at X dollars of revenue, you get a payout of this. And if you hit the next tier, you get a payout of that. Correct. So it's the former, although we do have opportunities for advisors to, you know, max out at 65, which by the way, any advisor who I have these discussions with, like you're not netting 65% on your own anywhere. If you're running a advisory business, I mean, maybe at a certain, I mean, there are certain places where I've seen that, but it's, it's very rare. So you can max out at the 65% you know, after you've achieved a certain sort of gross revenue number, but it everything, and this is my belief that we've gotten to a place where we're very cookie cutter with advisors. And as RAs have grown bigger and bigger, it's become less about the advisor experience and what's customized to their business and more about like, we need to quickly gain scale and this is the formula and this is how it's going to work. You know, we, we spend a lot of time exploring the P&L and the team construction and the business and it's a negotiated payout that, to your point, is based on, you know, what the advisor is willing to take our advice on or not. And in every scenario I've looked at, with the exception of one where it was a firm that was doing a lot of insurance production, the advisor is taking home more money in this structure than running it on their own. And so does that mean if I have 
staffing changes to my own team, you know, I either want to bulk up a little bit more or I want to, I'm comfortable to dial down a little, my, like, my payout could get changed or, like, renegotiated at the end of the year because I changed my staffing support? No, I mean, the payouts are negotiated before an advisor joins us, right? And there, it's not like it, I mean, we will, and again, this is part of our belief that we we don't want to transact with advisors. And honestly, Michael, maybe this will change in 10 years. But our approach right now is that any decision about the business itself, the advisor's feelings about where the business is at, any decisions about the business need to be made in conjunction with the advisor. So we will make the decisions about how we're going to optimize team. We'll agree on payout. And again, it's always going to be within that range. Advisor joins us. And then we come to an agreement around, look, if you you hit this sort of revenue mark, you, you know, you're going to climb up to, to a max out at 65%. Um, but the, the other piece of that, that we really try to get advisors to understand is that you're not just going to theoretically take home more money, you know, that represent quote unquote net profits, but we're also creating space and capacity for you to grow at a faster rate. And then actually teaching you how to organize your day so that you are maxing that out. And I'll, let me expand on that. So the first piece of that is that and I tell advisors, imagine your week is suddenly empty of the hours that you spend on all the things that don't actually have to do with having conversations with clients, financial planning, and bringing in new business. Like imagine taking away all of that. And we get down to as granular as building out CRM workflows. So when the advisor, day one that the advisor starts with us, their entire business is set up for them so that they can optimize their day and the way they work through workflow. So like everything from CRM workflows to um, marketing tech platforms that help push out content to team meeting agendas for their team, like everything is built out. This is where the practice management, you know, content creation comes in handy because we literally put all these things in place. They start day one they're hitting the ground running with their team. We go so far as like the associate advisor has an idea of what development pathway they're going to be on for the next three years. So like the advisor doesn't really do or create any of this. Well, great. Now the advisor is left with 25 more hours in their week. (laughs) And we know that one of two things can happen. Either work expands to fill the time you have to complete it, right? So now you're like operating less productively or we step in and we're saying, wow, you have 25 more hours. Let's strategize on like who you're talking to, how you're filling that time, what you want to be spending that time. Maybe you want to spend your time with your kids. Like that's great. And we support that, but let's be strategic about it. And so what we know, and we prove this with our first tuck-in is advisors will grow faster than ever before when they have time to do so. And that's and so we proved in year one that it, it works the way we thought it would. So yes, I'm just trying to say, so what happens as my team grows? Like I, I get this when me and my support team, right? My my CSA, my paraplanner associate advisor, you'll help manage and oversee them a little bit. I just get to go do my do my thing with clients. You'll you'll kind of guide me on their development paths and so forth. So what what happens when eventually like you know, my my associate advisor wants to move up to a lead where normally like they're getting paid on revenue they're servicing, but that was dollars that I was getting under the journey payout. So like, do you pay me and I pay them? Does my revenue get carved off to them? Are you not necessarily working with advisors that 
are looking to build like multi-advisor systems that way in the first place. It's 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 you know folks that want to tuck in with their own team, not necessarily grow multi-advisor teams of that nature. So like how how does this work as the team expands, or is the idea that you're not necessarily working with advisors who are trying to build multi-advisor teams? They're trying to build highly highly profitable uh, practices for themselves. That's a great question, and no, it's the former in terms of who we tend to talk to. It's advisors who want next gen on their team to develop into the you know it, the, the lead advisors in the organization or advisors who are coming to us with other revenue generators on the team the answer is it depends on how the advisor comes to us and here's what i mean by that well first of all if if an advisor is the only i'll say coming to us is the only sort of producer on the team meaning other advisors are paid a salary plus bonus that's the best case scenario and sort of easy to manage because we're responsible for helping to continue to develop compensation um we can get really creative with you know how we pay people who are developing into the quote unquote lead advisor role if that advisor wants to be sort of their own advisor within an advisory organization um there's a lot of unique things we can do with you know paying overrides to the to the senior advisor um we can keep them on a uh, a salary plus bonus track. And the the benefit is that, you know, that responsibility and risk is really on us. The advisor's payout, who's coming to us as the, you know, owner of the business, um, the advisor's payout doesn't change. Journey has to be smart about how they're managing that P&L so that we can still be profitable on that team and also right. pay people what they deserve. Now, if an advisory team is coming to us from a wirehouse, let's say where there's multiple producers, every advisor gets a payout. Now, we still treat that like, let's just say it's a team coming out of like UBS, there's multiple producers on the team, they get a 40% payout, let's just call it where they're at. And then there's support staff that are on salary plus bonuses, like the advisors that are producing or have been called producers will get payouts, everybody else is managed with their, the traditional, you know, salary plus bonus and incentives. If if the associate partner gets to a place where now succession planning is coming into play, maybe they want to buy out senior advisors, book of business, or maybe they're thinking about, you know, what does partnership look like? We can actually provide the capital for them to, you know, buy the advisor out. Because the challenge now too in our industry is valuations are so high that it's hard, just candidly, like not every associate person on a team is able to afford to buy out the advisor at the valuation that the business is now worth. So we actually support advisors in developing into that lead advisor role. And also we will co-invest with them in buying out the senior advisor. So it's a long answer, but it's highly customized and it depends really on the contracts that the advisor is coming to us with, if that makes sense. And so what are the typical size of practices just that are coming to you for this? And I, I think of this as a tuck-in model. I don't know if that's a label you, you we, use. Yes, it is. Okay. And we, yes, we do use that. Although, again, I found that that doesn't always resonate. Like, that's a term we use Yeah, like it's lot. industry-ish. I don't yeah. know that I'm excited as an advisor to say, like, I'm tucking in. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's... Yeah, I, I get it. it it's... <laughs> It feels business descriptive. It's not the, it's probably not the best marketing label. Right. But, but that, you know, essentially that is what it is. And we explain really clearly, like joining someone's ADV um, and we're almost at 3 billion in AUM. There are benefits to doing that. And especially when you've got, you know, window of time to build and like, there's reasons why some advisors would want to do that. I totally understand advisors who don't want to do that and want to maintain their own name recognition. Like this stuff is really personal and, 
I'm committed to, even if an advisor says, you know what, those are deal breakers. Great. Like, let's find you a forever home somewhere yeah. with a firm that's like a good firm. So I'm totally fine with that. Um, Be- because advisors who come to you, like they do need to, they do need to use the journey label. Like they, they need yes. to use the journey firm name. You're not, you're not necessarily doing uh, uh, DBA kinds of structures. No DBA. And I, we really debated this. It's really simple. Our goal as the firm and quote, quote unquote, like the home office is to, you know, drive enterprise value for the overall organization so that everybody can benefit. And I would say uniformity in name, marketing, PR, being able to scale those services, like it's much right. easier to do that with one name. And look, we've seen firms that have, you know, done the partnership model with DBAs and it's not always super successful or profitable. And so yeah, we were sort of clear on that from the beginning. I mean, most of the time I'll hear somebody say, well, I got a lot of stuff I want to write off and I've always written off and and like, <laughs> we'll have those discussions. And we, yeah, yeah. part of being as hands-on as we are, is we want advisors to feel like we're their, you know, CFO will come to them and say, look, theoretically, like, here's what you should spend this quarter on, like all your, you know, travel and client events. And I have found that that's actually what advisors want. They just don't know they want it. And so I need to bridge that gap in their minds. What's been so interesting about running this, because it is a startup, even though we've got a tremendous, you know, year, 15 months, we anticipated a certain type of advisor speaking to us. And it has been really all over the map. I would say the standard business that we can do a lot with in terms of helping is the advisor that's generating, you know, let's just say a million in revenue and wants to figure out how to get to 5 million in revenue. Um, Or an advisor that's in a Northwestern Mutual building, has a DBA, is managing, you know, 250 million in AUM and has a team of five and is sort of like, God, I'm about to plateau. I've done so good up until this point. So that advisor, it's like the solo practitioner who has a support team, is trying to figure out how to scale is generating, you know, a million in revenue. We can do so much in terms of helping that business institutionalize and grow exponentially. What I didn't anticipate was having the $4 million wirehouse team be like, this sounds a lot better than us trying to go out in, you know, the final inning of like my career and trying to launch my own RIA. And that's been the really exciting thing for me because we, I just didn't anticipate really wanting to or going after those advisors. And I find that they actually get it because they've come from. Well, they've lived a payout. Exactly. Or success, exactly. Success payouts at wires tend to be a bit, a bit lower than where you guys are. Cause you know, a lot, lot, lot of additional overhead and dynamics and wirehouses. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, it just, it, it strikes me. I mean, even, even relative to the street independent channel, at least the independent brokerage channel you've talked about where you, you know, you get to these like high 80, low 90% payouts. It's like, well, okay, but then you, you still have all of your overhead. I mean, you need to do your technology and support staff and admin staff and uh, HR and bookkeeping and compliance and fin ups and all like all the, all the stuff that, re- that goes in the cat the overhead category of an advisory firm, which in practice for most firms is can th- 30 to 35% of revenue is pretty typical once you get to a, sort of just a critical mass of, of size and team infrastructure. And it's like, you can go try to get a 90% payout and then still have 30 plus percent overhead. And when you net that out, it's like, yeah, you're basically like right back in the same place. <laughs> exactly. The other thing is the industry is changing so rapidly just in terms of 
solutions and the fintech space is a whole other, you know, animal. And, and what I found for many of these advisors who are leaving captive systems to go out on their own, they don't know a whole lot about the industry. And I don't, it's not their fault, but you know, I talk to firms all the time that have actually gone out, they've, they've launched their own RIA. They have no idea about what's new in fintech or, you know, what's happening. And you're, you're a business owner in a specific industry. It's actually critically important that you understand what's happening in the industry you're at. And I think that is something that's underestimated how much time and effort and resources that take, like going to conferences, you know, joining podcasts, listening to people like you and staying in the know. I just, I don't think advisors should have that responsibility if they don't have to. And, and so we, we try to solve for that as well. And I just say the last piece is like, like there are RAs out there that'll say, join us. Like we have a hundred billion in, in AUM and all these teams. And it's like, yes, but not always necessarily. Like just because firms have affiliated with an RIA or pay whatever they pay a year to access certain technologies, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're really getting other anything other than, you know, tech and some compliance oversight. And so it's just, it's really important for advisors to fully think through, like, what do I want to be responsible for? What are those responsibilities comprise of on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. And then finally, like, when the firm says they offer practice management, which every, are, every firm in the industry says that, like, what does that mean? What it usually means is it's just a BS marketing line that they put into a pitch yeah. deck And the truth is that what that means is that if you have a problem, you can call a relationship manager and they'll help you. That's not practice management coaching. And as somebody who's in that space, like I'm very, I get very offended by that. Like that's not consulting. That's, you can call somebody and complain about like tech not working. Like that's not somebody who's trained to help you develop as a leader and help you make critical decisions about the business proactively on an ongoing basis. Like that is what journey is. And out of curiosity, just because I, I know some other firms do versions of this, do advisors who tuck in and participate in Journey, like, are they equity owners in Journey? Like, is there a, and if we sell this Journey thing someday, you like, you participate in that with a way that some, some aggregators do it and, and, and pitch their value proposition? Or are these meant to be separate? Like, you've got your Journey for doing your thing. You're helping them build their practice and get their payout. And that, that's their deal. They don't own a piece of Journey overall. I mean, listen, if, if a firm is with us and if we ever, you know, monetize down the line, obviously firm benefits, uh, underlying firms are, you know, it's tag along, not drag along. So if they want to sell at that time as well, like they'll benefit from our multiple, we'll take a small turn on that. Uh, but it's, you know, more than they would get if they were selling independently. And additionally, we do set up and this sort of gets into the specifics and logistics, but we do set up a, a you know, corporation and we want to ensure that if they do monetize, that's taxed favorably to them and it's not paid as, as ordinary income. Um, and so we've tried to think about all the different ways in which we can benefit the advisor at the moment of monetization. If they want to sell before we, I mean, we, I, I don't know what's in the future for Journey. I know we're not going anywhere for, you know, at least the next 15 years. Um, but if they want to sell before that, we have the capital to be able to buy up to 100% of their business at any time. Um, and so they don't own Journey overall, but they do own, quote unquote, their underlying business. So as you've gone through this, well, Journey, no, no pun intended, um, <laughs> 
having lived the practice management consulting side for many years and now building and scaling yourself with Journey directly, like what surprised you the most about building an advisory firm at this point? Honestly, this is going to sound crazy, but I, I know it's going to resonate. How different the tech is when you're working in it versus talking about it or coaching around it. And really simply, what I mean is how disjointed tech is and not aggregated enough and mm. not um, maybe aggregated is the wrong word, but integrated, I guess, like data flow, um, just the, the actual sheer challenge to build a, a structure where we're centralizing operations and relying on technology to pass data back and forth in a world where people are calling single sign-on a full integration. That's not a full integration. And I yeah. complain about this all the time. So just uh-huh. really getting a, the insider's view on like what it is like to actually try to build something efficiently, it's incredibly challenging. And the, and honestly, the, the hardest part has been efficiently using technology in a way that will help us scale the business. And I can't believe advisors have to go yeah. through some of this stuff on their own. Um, so that, believe it or not, I would say that's the most challenging in terms of like getting people interested in our idea and building and hiring, I, I did not find that to be the challenging part. So what was the low point for you? Um, we've been technically in business for 15 months. I love this work. I can't say there's a lot of low points. The lowest points are, and this is something as a leader, you know, you face all the time. It's just when you're running an organization that's not just a you know lifestyle coaching business, you're going to make decisions that are not popular all the time. You're going to mm-hmm. have a perspective on things that, Others will disagree on, and the truth is you can't get through building something like this. We're at 15 people right now and and growing and obviously, you know, got a lot going on this year for us. You're not going to be liked every day. And and I think advisors face that, um, leaders face it. And the the low point is just, I think for me, is is trying to find the balance between knowing what's right in, in terms of where to take the business, but balancing that with not, it not always being the popular choice or decision. And look, working with people is, in my opinion, the hardest part about being in a, in a service business, like different people, different personalities, experiences. It's hard. It's just really hard. So what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from a few years ago? Um, I would congratulate myself, first of all, for not, I'd pitched this sort of idea about Journey to a potential investor years ago. And I'm so happy I didn't and and launched with these partners in this way. It's like, I was smart to do that. I saw that that would not be a good partnership. So that I would say like, good for you, you're thinking right there. But something I know now that I didn't know then, be open-minded, I think about, and I, this is not in a negative way, but when I was consulting, I'd consulted for wirehouses like on projects. And I'm like, you know, I don't really know if I want to work within that division of the industry, like advisors, it's, it's really hard for them to actually implement and make decisions and like do things. And I think just keep an open mind about who this type of business could benefit and where this value proposition would resonate the most. That, that was definitely um, a learning for me. Um, and, and sort of that's something that I wasn't really thinking about a couple of years ago that I'm that I've definitely shifted on now. To me, that's always one of the the fascinating things around just entrepreneurship and building your business. I mean, you, usually we build with some vision or expectation, like w- where this is going, who is this going to serve, uh, w- where we're going to get traction, success. But like ultimately, the people who buy are the people who are going to buy. Like the people who engage, the people who are going to engage, and it doesn't always turn out to be the ones that you thought it was going to be. Like. 
often it does. Usually we've got a good sense of, of who we're serving, but not always. Like some sometimes you find traction or success in unexpected places. And I find one of the challenges for some people is you can even unwittingly get stuck in the vision of how you thought it was going to go originally and, and miss the opportunity that knocks on your door because they don't fit where you thought it was going to go originally. And, and then you fail to make the pivot when it was right in front of you. So true. And we pivoted on something major within 11 months. We because we advisors tend to come to us with books that are comprised of different revenue sources, right? Like maybe they're doing planning and charging a fee and they've got advisory business and maybe they're selling some insurance or whatever it is. We originally intended to run everything through the single payout and treat the entire business as, you know, one business, one P&L. And then we found that the insurance business is a different animal. And we actually pay out completely different. We found that advisors who are ready to make a transition to an RA are likely not concerned about like hitting insurance quota. But if an advisor is going to sell you know, insurance as part of implementing a plan, they keep the majority of, of the revenue on that business. And so that was a major pivot we made because we were open to evolving the way we've thought about the structure. You know, but I just I thought of one other thing that I wanted to share on learnings. And I, I just recorded a video on this for my YouTube channel. And it's the, the importance of we can't underestimate how valuable it is to leverage EQ skills when you are talking to advisors who are looking for a home. We're obsessed in our business with the transaction, right? Like how much was the business worth? What's the AUM? Like the advisors that I want at Journey are advisors who want us to ask things like, what would feel most fulfilling to you? What does your spouse think about this decision? Um, You know, talk to me about the things that you really want to make sure never change post-transition. I've been in so many conversations, Michael, on both sides of the equation, as a consultant and now in this space trying to do deals and I've M&A guys in the room, P guy, whatever it is. And it's just, you. there aren't that many conversations that are targeted to, let's look at the advisor seller's psyche and quell all their concerns before even putting an LOI in front of them. And like, that is a major differentiator for us. And I didn't realize how important that would be a couple of years ago. So what advice would you give to younger, newer advisors coming into the industry today? I would say... Keep an open mind about how you define success. What's happened to a lot of the, we'll call them old school advisors, is that the industry defines success for them a very specific way, especially if they grew up at any of the firms we've talked about. And what's important for the next generation and the newer generation is that there are a a, a thousand different ways to build there's a, a bunch of different ways in which you can be an advisor on a team, as still as a solo, ex, you know, whatever it is. Forget what the industry tells you or what you read about. There's no one way that is better than the other or more right than the other. Everything is about trade-offs. And so knowing and, and using the first couple of years to really identify what you know and love, super important, whether that is the the technical components of actually being a planner or whether you like being a planner because you also get to lead a team but like figuring out what you really love and enjoy number one secondly not having a preconceived notion about what success may look like for you really important as well and again I've seen a lot of advisors not make a good decision about a transition or about where they're going next because they're so caught up in this thinking of 
I need to, you know, be the CEO with, you know, Philips Financial on the door. And they're just so stuck in that thought process that it's hard for them to think about, like, is that really aligned with what I said I wanted to spend my time doing? And so having an an open mind around that and being willing to sort of evolve as the business life cycle unfolds, that's my advice um, to, to younger advisors. If it's not the industry's traditional definition of success and it, it's supposed to be something different, like what is the industry's traditional definition of success and what kinds of different definitions are you talking about here? Well, I could be wrong if in terms of this still being the definition, but it it feels to me as somebody who tries to also be a student of the industry and put myself in the sort of mindset of an advisor, like reading all of the news that comes out and press releases and like the way we market to advisors, right? It's still very much favors this idea of solo practitioner, solopreneur advisor building a business because they're an amazing rainmaker and ultimately getting to Nirvana, which is you've hit 1 billion in AUM and you have, you know, your council member. Look at any article or press release that's written about an advisor, right? Or an advisor transition. It's it's almost always about the same things, right? Like AUM, um, valuation of business, then that's pretty much it. And even when you look at and when you consult at the larger institutions, the way they pay advisors has not changed for the most part. Like there are some some that have really embrace the teaming model. But like, for the most part, it's still you produce and you get paid. And the more you produce, the more you get paid. In some firms, it's still you produce a specific product sale and you get paid more. So so we're still pushing this idea that you as producer and then you as CEO equals best. And it's the reason why we still have really low retention rates. It's the reason why we let go of advisors who and I, even in the RAA space, like everybody wants to bring on an advisor with a book of business, which is understandable. And everybody wants like, where's the next rainmaker? And the reality is, is we're dealing with a different generation of advisor. Like you may have to train that rainmaker. That person may need to be mentored for 10 to 15 years before they develop the skill set of, you know, developing business. Oh, and by the way, they may never develop that skill set of developing business, but that doesn't mean they're a bad advisor. And so when I talk about the different success pathways, um, and I speak to female advisors and planners specifically who've said to me, like, I really enjoy what I do. And I wish I could just do that and and have that be like the the way I spend the majority of my day. So number one way to think about success is like you are not the CEO. Like that may mean you have to hire a CEO, by the way, to like build and grow and and strategically like drive the business, but you can be the practitioner in that organization and still be the owner. Like that's one thing. The other thing is just because you can't quote unquote produce doesn't mean you shouldn't be an advisor. Now, and this was always my rub with the insurance broker dealer channel, like they'd leave, they'd get advisors would leave because they couldn't hit their quotas. But these are people sometimes with phenomenal relationship management skills or, or really technically proficient in planning, but couldn't produce to their contracts. So ended up, we'd, you lose that talent. That person could be a great lead advisor in an organization and and eventually make partner, like that's okay too. And so those are the different pathways of success that I think we need to think about. Um, And there, I mean, we can, I could go on a rabbit hole here because there's, there's also this challenge of, I think this advisors aging out of the industry, you know, the, the old school advisors, 
they feel resentful in some cases about the advisor that's going to be their successor that didn't have to grind the way they did. And I think we got to get over that and just accept that we're in a different time and advisor leaders are going to be developed differently in our business. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that just comes up is the the word success means different things to to different people. So as we've just been discussing the context of advisors. And so you, you've been down this successful journey with your career, both in, in building practice management consulting business and now in, in, in launching journey. And so I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? For myself personally or for journey? We are one and the same, I feel like sometimes. For yourself. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. I like I said, and I think this, and I don't know if it ha- if it's a gender thing or if it's a me thing or I I am I. There are certain things that I look, and I do this with the team as well, and I encourage everybody in our organization to think about success in a way that's meaningful to them, and that goes for the advisors, that goes for everybody on the team. Meaning, at the end of the week on a Friday, if you ask yourself, "Was this week successful?" Yes or no. If yes, why? If no, why? Was this week fulfilling? Yes or no? How are you answering those questions? And when it's affirmative, like, what are you, why? Um, I encourage everybody to think about that. And what we learn from doing those exercises is that a lot of times it, it doesn't have to do with, you know, sometimes it has to do with AUM and, and new business, but other times it doesn't. And so for me personally, when I think about success, it's number one, did I drive recognition around why we're doing this this week. And and all the things I talked about with gaps I've seen, advisors being unhappy, I think the industry really driving outcomes versus allowing advisors to create their own, like all those reasons. Did, did I drive that point home in the conversations I've had with potential advisors, the conversations I've had with the team, the content that I've put out? That's one way I look at, like, did I move the needle? Was I successful? Um, another thing personally is just this this idea of being direct and honest about concepts that we've convoluted for advisors. So payout being one of them, the way they think about what it means to be on someone's ADV. Like, am I giving advisors all of the objective, as objective as I can be owning a RIA, am I giving them all of the information as objectively as I can, that they need to make the most educated and empowered decision for themselves. I talk to advisors literally every single day. Obviously, the majority of them are not going to come to Journey. I mean, it would be great, but is the decision that they made as a result of the discovery process or conversation or exploratory, whatever we just had, enough to get them to a place that they'll never want to leave? That's, at this point in my career, how I define success. Now, I also think about all day, every day, And again, this is translatable for advisors. We have a very specific value proposition. We have a very specific mission statement. I am successful if and only if we delivered that in a real tangible way to an advisor at the end of every single week. And an example of like evidence of that. So I'm constantly looking for evidence of either I've achieved this personally or not. When I have my catch-up calls with each of my team members and and our partner advisors, and they'll say something like, you know, I reflected this week and realized that I was able to, you know, do all the things I wanted to do, bring on, you know, that the relationship and also pick my kids up from school at three o'clock and and didn't skip a beat. When the advisor is articulating to me that they're living their most fulfilling life, 
then I am successful. So it's what I've noticed is it's become much less about my talents, which my consulting and coaching career was, you know, focused on my ability to, you know, get people. Now it's much more focused on like these bigger concepts and advisor success, which is actually really fulfilling to me. So it's a long way of talking through how I think about whether I'm succeeding. Well, well uh, as we said earlier, it's it's that it's that journey to making yourself uh, quote ir- irrelevant in the <laughs> exactly. in the business by exactly. institutionalizing your intellectual property. Exactly, that's right. Well, I love it, Penny. Thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. This was awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.